Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm Polly Puller and I'm your guest host for this exciting instalment when I will have the pleasure of chatting to Jack Parks about his fascinating life and work. Firstly, let's have a wee look at the news. On the tiny Hebridean island of Egg, one of the small isles, Rum, Muck and Canner are the other three that make up the group, there have recently been three exciting new discoveries. Firstly, a barred tooth-striped moth, a species usually found in England, appears to be heading north. It was caught in a trap earlier this spring. Then the islanders had a visitation from a nuthatch, another species that appears to be drawn northwards. I live in Highland Persia, and in the last couple of years, we've been seeing far more of these wee birds in our gardens. Finally, the third unusual visitor was a magpie, a bird that is not usually ever seen in Loch Arbor, or for that matter, in the islands. There've also been reports from the Macrihanish Bird Observatory on the Mull of Kintyre, where a few magpies have been spotted well out of their usual range. It's appropriate to this podcast that another massive bearded creature, a bearded vulture this time, has been seen in Derbyshire's Peak District this week. Bird watchers have traveled from afar to catch a glimpse of the fabulous bird, also called the Lamagaya, and nicknamed the Bonebreaker. It's only once previously been recorded in the UK. Unfortunately, carrion is its favored food. So let's hope that in an area notorious for illegal poisoning, it remains safe and soon returns to the Swiss or French Alps where Lamagayas have recently been successfully reintroduced. Meanwhile, the best news of all this week is really in Gloucestershire's Forest of Dean, there have been some fabulous developments and at least three of 18 pine martens that were taken from Scotland under special license last year have now given birth to kits. It's all and more that could be hoped for in this brilliant project to bring our most endearing and mischievous mustelid back to England. Though seeing the young martens has proved difficult, radio tracking and camera trapping has revealed that they are indeed thriving. And now with this new arrival of kits, it proves that the forest habitat is suiting them well. It bodes extremely well for the future when more martens are going to be brought from Scotland to further expand the population. It's a project led by Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust and Forestry England, with support from the Vincent Wildlife Trust, the Woodland Trust and Forest Research. Whew, what a mouthful. This groundbreaking venture has been made possible by Scottish Natural Heritage and Forestry and Land Scotland, and has been generously supported by Forest Holidays. What I love best about this is it proves just what can be done when local communities and conservation bodies work closely together to restore nature to its rightful place. A success indeed. Congratulations to all involved. And now to a man who describes himself as a naturalist, who is also a photographer. He has a vast knowledge of freshwater fish and amphibians and all kinds of species that some people might consider wrongly unglamorous. Yet, as Jack Perks reveals in his incredible, fabulous films and photographs, the underwater world contains some of the most glamorous and gorgeous living things on Earth. Jack, welcome. How are you? I'm good. It's very weird being on the other the other sea, especially as I'm starting to blush now after all those nice things you said about me. No, it's <laughs> very deserved that you're on the other end of this, because when you chatted to me a few months back, 
I was absolutely itching to turn the whole thing around and ask you everything about your life and work. You've, you've done some amazing things already in a very short time. How did all this begin? Um, well, I've always been interested in nature since, since before I can remember, really. I don't ever remember not being interested in, in the natural world. And photography came a lot later in filmmaking. That was just an excuse to go outdoors, really. But I was always kind of knee-deep catching frogs and looking for minnows and stuff like that. And I was, I was feral as a child, pretty much, um, in kind of growing up in the early 90s. And just fostered this, this love for the natural world. And although I like birds and mammals and things like that, I love all natural, natural history, it was the kind of the unloved, the unwashed that caught my imagination, like like fish, like I'm kind of known for now, but also reptiles, amphibians, insects, and I couldn't really understand why people would kind of have these reactions, like Ugh! At, at, when they'd see something. I thought, no, it's amazing, it's absolutely incredible, um, and I wanted to, as I say, an excuse to do it all. So, looked into doing photography. Uh, I did a two-year uh, BTEC course in in Nottinghamshire, and then I did a three-year a degree in marine and natural history down in Falmouth in Cornwall so you know beautiful place to live Cornwall always wanted to live there um, and then I came back home to, to Nottinghamshire and somehow carved out a career filming predominantly fish but all, all wildlife really so um, I would say I'm very lucky but I work I work quite hard as well at what I do. When you were little did any particular moment sort of make you decide to take this path was it going out looking for tadpoles was it you used to bring bullheads home in jars and things like that didn't you yeah um I, it almost become a sort of annual pilgrimage to collect frog spawn and then watch it grow. i'd have it in a little tub in an ice cream tub or something and then watch it grow and then release it back into my pond and i used to love um love doing that watching the kind of metamorphosis and like oh they've got legs today they've got their back legs they've got their front legs so i always remember doing that kind of thing in terms of a specific moment, there wasn't anything in particular. I mean, I used to keep a lot of reptiles as well. That was another thing. I, I, was, I was madly obsessed with Steve Irwin. He was my hero as, as a kid. I absolutely, I think about it now in this sort of society, you'd never, you'd never have a show with a man jumping on a crocodile now. But, but back then it was just, it just seemed normal. Um, Is there something it, you wanted to do as well? Um, I'm, as you can probably say, I'm quite spindly. I think if I jumped on a crocodile, it would not work. It wouldn't work out very well. But but I like that that hands-on way because uh, as, as brilliant as say someone like David Attenborough or, or someone else like that, they're obviously more kind of passive. Like they're describing the animal, and that's lovely. But what I liked about Steve Irwin was that for a kid, it was exciting. There was this man; he was jumping on crocodiles and picking up snakes and stuff. And it was like, that's, that's awesome. That kind of captured my attention. And I was like, wow, that's really, really interesting. That's kind of the, the English version of, you know, picking up a frog, not quite as extreme. But I'd be like, this is really interesting frog. Get a good look at it and, you know, let it go. None the worse for wear or anything like that. So, yeah, it was, it was amazing doing all that kind of stuff. And what were you like at school? Were you uh, a good student or were you always desperate to get outside? Yeah, I wasn't. I was fairly well behaved. I, I, I've, I've, I'm dyslexic, so I've got... Uh, a low attention span so I tend to kind of I've got a scatterbrain at the best of times so I was put uh, again they probably wouldn't be able to say this now I was put on the special table they called it and I was just like oh right okay but one yeah better than the naughty corner the what you what sorry one better than the naughty corner yes yeah basically too much yeah basically yeah so yeah I wasn't I wasn't particularly 
badly behave. But yeah, if anything interesting turned up in the school, if the hedgehog was in the hedge, they'd say, go and find Jack. And I'd kind of run and have a look at it. Or um, when I was at university, actually, there was a, a washed up whale. And, and we all, and about half of us in the classroom just, just bailed. We were like, well, we're not going to listen to this. We want to go see this whale. Uh, and the, the lecturer's like, yeah, fair enough. You know, that, that, yeah, it's a good an excuse as any. And we drove to a place called Port Town. What was the, what type of a whale was it? It was, it was a fin whale. It was a 17 metre fin whale. And it, it was dead by the time we turned up. And I've never smelt anything. I don't know if you've ever smelt a rotting whale. Yes, I have a Cuvier's beaked whale in Isla. And uh, <laughs> I, just, I just remember um, actually going there with um, my uh, then boyfriend, who I now live with, and telling him that I'd found this thing. And this romantic romance of us sort of falling in love over a rotting, vile whale. The dogs thought it was great. But anyway, yes, they do stink. They, it was horrendous. I've never smelled anything like it in my life. You know, I've had grass snakes poo on me and, and, and fox poo and all that kind of stuff. But rotting whale is, is up there. It was, it was horrendous. But to see a whale close up, you know, in the 17 metre fin whale, I mean, that's not even, um, they get a lot bigger than that. I think they're the second largest animal in the world. But it was huge. It was absolutely enormous. It was incredible to see that. So I bailed class to go see that. Recently, you have done some absolutely incredible uh, things. First of all, you have accomplished something which I've been fascinated by, which is photographing every freshwater fish in the UK. And how many species is that? Is that... Well, it depends who you ask. So <laughs> I, I would yeah. say 53. Some would argue 54. I mean, it, it's funny because obviously, I guess it's a bit like a bird watching list. How, how can you be sure how many birds there are? But um, with, uh, with the fish, yeah. There's 50, 53 species. The one that kind of causes contention is the burbot, which is a freshwater cod. And there's not been a confirmed sighting since 1969. Uh, I think that was in Cambridgeshire. So they're, they're extinct. They're not, they're not around. But there's always someone going to be like, oh, how do you know? So to kind of quash that, there's a stuffed one in my local museum. So I photographed that. And I said, well, I've technically photographed one. It's not moving and it's not alive. But that's as close as I'm going to get. So that's kind of what do I did. Do you think to... it could could be still around um i mean never say never i i doubt it just because i mean the classic signs of pollution habitat loss they they need quite cold water to breed and obviously with warming climates that's not been ideal but you know i'd like to think i'd love to be proven wrong is is the way that i'd look at this so i'd but love someone to say habitat, where would you have found one traditionally um, so well weirdly kind of my local nottinghamshire would have had them in the river trent they would have been there but they were an eastern england species so i think they were present in the thames the fenlands norfolk east angular south yorkshire uh, and the east midlands was the kind of the place you'd find them so they, they could be they get, I mean, some of them get to about eight or nine pounds, so they can get pretty, pretty chunky. I mean, there are plans to reintroduce them. Uh, you know, we talk about the lynx and we talk about, I mean, bison was yep. another one recently uh, down, down in Kent. But there are plans to reintroduce burbot to Norfolk, I think. So I'm, I'm kind of fully behind that. You know, it's lovely to have wolves, but let, let's get some burbot back. So of those 54 species, how many of those are actually native or, or are they all native? Oh, that's a good question. No, they're not. No. So the way that I compiled the list was that it was any freshwater fish that you're likely to find in, in British waters. So that included marine fish that enter freshwater and can stay there. Things like flounder and mullet. It included the non-native ones. So there are, I think there are 14 non-natives. So if I do a quick... Which, 
which notable ones are there? Can you name some? For example, zander, which are like a kind yeah. of uh, a large toothy perch. You've got catfish, Wells catfish, which are, you know, they get some of them get to two hundred pounds and can eat birds. So we don't really want those here. I mean, gold, goldfish, common goldfish. They're not a native species. So rainbow trout. There's, there's, yeah, there's quite a few there. I mean, there aren't any that are really widespread and causing huge issues but it's something to be aware of like like any other non-native species so i guess in terms of native there's around about 30 mid 30s i can't remember the exact number i think i found 38 oh, okay so i wasn't far I off i don't know if that's accurate or not that yeah. sounds sounds about right and which which is the rarest of all these fish well i, I mean you could argue the burb up because I, but because i think it's extinct i'm not going to include that one so i would yeah. actually say the vendace is the rarest oh. one and there are there's a couple of populations in scotland there's a couple of uh, populations in the lake district and they're kind of like a a trouty heron uh, herring looking fish and they're not they're not that remarkable to look at i shouldn't say that because all fish are remarkable but they're just kind of like a silvery little thing but you find them in a couple of places i think loch skeen is one of the places you find them and there's um a reservoir they were introduced in scotland as well but again, that's another one because of uh, global warming or climate change. It's just getting too warm for them and they're, they're struggling to breed and again, pollution and whatnot. And, and realistically, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 15, 20 years we lose them just because there seems to be a downward trending spiral of them. So it's a shame, really, because if you talk to most naturalists and you say, have you heard about Avendes? They probably look at you kind of blurry eyed and not have a clue what it is. Yeah, um, do you think we'll lose Arctic char as well? Because they seem to like cold they do. Water, don't they? Yeah, yeah they do. do. The only reason I think we probably wouldn't is because they're so numerous. In I mean, I think in Scotland they're in they're in over two hundred locks in Scotland. They're in a few lakes in the Lake District and they're in Wales. So there's there's quite a healthy population. I don't think they're numerous, particularly numerous in any of them. But they're so widespread in so many locks. Obviously, warming temperatures aren't going to do them any favours, but I'd be surprised if we lost them, but have you have you ever seen an Arctic char? Yes, I have, and I've have eaten you? them too. Yeah. Um, oh, well, you're the pro you're the problem, Polly. Then if you're eating them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I only ate them once, and actually, to be honest with you, I thought they were rather tasteless. Didn't really taste of anything, but uh, you know. I, I did eat one out of Loch Lomond actually, so I can't really I can't have a pop at you. But yeah, they, I thought they were all right, but I guess that might have been the seasoning. Now, were you um, involved at all when they found another species out? Now, I maybe won't get this right. A brown trout, I think, in um, a loch up near Rannach. Did you get involved in that? No, I didn't hear about that. What was that was then? About three years ago, they found in some very deep um, loch, and I can't remember whether it was, there's another loch up near Rannach. Um, uh, I've forgotten the name begins with L. I'll remember in a minute. But anyway, they found some another species of trout in this loch living in the very deepest part i'll have to find out about it and let you know uh, well, you've been involved in that well i know that brown trout are the most genetically diverse vertebrate in the world so they come in so many different shapes and sizes and scientists a lot of them argue that almost every loch should be a different species some of them argue they're just subspecies and then some of them argue well they're all just the same just different shapes and colors so yeah, it's kind of a hot topic in, in fish science, I suppose. Yes, I'm sure. And there'll be a lot of, um, it'll be something, purists will be saying one thing, I suppose. And yeah. yeah. And you campaigned to get a national fish, didn't you? Yes. Well, I, I saw that 
David Lindo, the urban birder, he, he did a bird vote and I thought that was a brilliant idea and it was a great way to rally the public behind birds. So uh, I got in touch with him because I didn't want him to think that I was just nicking his idea and he was very supportive. He said, well, yeah, go for it. So I tried to do a, a fish vote and I think I got around 7,000 votes in the end, which was, which, you know, it's not a huge amount in the grand scheme of things, but it was, it was good enough um, to get this national fish vote. And we, we picked around 20 species for people to go through everything from basking sharks to cod to, you know, uh, pike and all kinds of different species. And eventually the, the brown trout one, which I thought, you know, I was perfectly happy with that. I, I, I'd like grayling to win, but to be fair, I think that was a bit fantasyful. Brown trout one, and they're found everywhere in the UK. They're a native species. They need nice, clean water. So, yeah, I think they deserve to win. Yeah, tell me about grayling. I don't know much about grayling, but they're obviously quite a favourite fish of yours. Can you hear my dog barking? Actually? Yes, I can. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Blood, that's okay. Bloody, bloody thing. <laughs> I had to shut the window to stop the cockerel at this end. He was serenading <laughs> his women very happily below the window. So yeah, so it's boiling in the office because of the cockerel. Oh. Well, I think my dog's made made three or four cameos on these podcasts now. Of her, well, I, think yeah. I don't think anybody minds. No yapping so, in the background. Sorry. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's, what was the question again? I'm, I'm just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me a bit more about grayling. Grayling. Sorry. Sorry. Obviously, you have a sort of fondness for. I, I do. I love grayling. They're they're my absolute favourite fish. They are found naturally in the east of England, but they've been introduced all over the place for angling. You know, down to the the chalk streams there. I think they're as far as Pitlochry in Scotland, so you do get them yeah. in, there as well. And they're just remarkable. They they look like they should be on a coral reef. They've got this gorgeous dorsal fin, and it's got kind of like ruby reds, kingfisher blues, beautiful mauves. It's like an oil painting. It really is phenomenal looking. And they're a member of the trout family, so related to salmon and trout and things like that. And the Peat District, not too far away from where I live. So I was listening with close ears about the, the vulture at the beginning of this. Um, they're pretty common in the Peak District. You do find them in most of the rivers there. They're a fantastic indicator of clean and healthy water. So if you've got grayling, you know that your river's in good shape. So for example, in Nottinghamshire, where I live, we don't really get grayling. Very, very rare because our rivers are just too, too polluted. But up in the Peak District, higher up, there's, there's healthy numbers of them. So it's, it's become a kind of treat that every spring... I'll go and try and film them spawning. But uh, this is actually the first year I've not been able to do it because of lockdown, which happened around March, April. That's when grayling spawn. I couldn't go. So this is the first time in seven years that I've not gone to film grayling. So I felt quite, uh, well, not quite depressed, but I felt a little bit down not being able to yeah. go visit, visit my grayling. Disappointing, incredibly disappointing because, yeah, that's a very important part of the calendar. And what about eels? Eels and lampreys, I think, are fascinating. I think a lot of people who are not very enamoured of fish find those two species quite intriguing. There's something slightly weird about both. They're slightly prehistoric, aren't they? Yeah, well, despite looking similar, they're, they're completely unrelated. They just superficially look the same. I mean, lamprey are 300 million years old. So that's way older than the dinosaurs. You know, these, these animals are so primitive, they don't have a jaw. They just have a, you know, a round mouth. And we've got three species in the UK of lamprey, the, the brook lamprey, which are the most widespread, little tiny ones. And all they do is filter feed in, in the gravel, in the silt. You then have the river lamprey, which is slightly bigger, and they'll go out to sea and then come back to spawn. Uh, they're also the lamprey that I think are responsible for killing King Henry I. There's, there's a king who died 
I think a surfeit of lamprey, and that was the lamprey that bumped him off. Supposedly, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of that. <laughs> yeah, it must have, it must have been. I don't know. And then this, yeah, too actually, you know. Uh, yeah, I think that probably didn't help. Mm. And then there's sea lamprey, which are the biggest ones, and they're the ones that you know they attach to basking sharks uh, and to whales and dolphins and things like that, and they are just just remarkable creatures. But then you look at eels, and they have a three thousand seven hundred mile journey from the Sargasso Sea all the way to the British coastline. It takes them three years of elvis to do this as they just drift on the uh, on the Gulf Stream. They can live well over a hundred if, if they get trapped in a waterway. So they're remarkable creatures and, and critically endangered. They're the same category as a tiger or a panda, and yet these could be swimming around in your local duck pond, your local canal. There could be this incredible creature lurking around there, whereas some people give them a bit of disdain. They don't like the slimy serpent-like appearance, but I think they're phenomenal. Yeah, they really are. And um, they still do get trapped and eaten, don't they? I mean, people do eat eels, smoked eels and things like that. Yeah, there, there are some sustainable... Um, I, I end up inevitably talking about eating all these fish, but eel's quite nice to eat, actually. I've, I've had smoked yeah. eel before. Um, there's a fishery on the River Severn where these elvermen it's like a kind of old countryside practice and they use these traditional nets to scoop up the baby elvers and in days gone by and they, they would have sold them for quite a lot of money i mean they still go for a hell of a lot of money i mean the the black market in elvers is is worth way more than caviar and it's, it's a huge it's kind of they call it the elver mafia there's there's all kinds of things around it but um they they sell them on but what they've started doing now is retaining a large amount of the catch and then spreading it to places where they're going to grow on. So they'll take these elvers to wetlands, they'll take them to um, kind of up, further up the river where they can't reach naturally, and then help them kind of on their journey. So they've kind of turned around. They, it's kind of like the, the poacher turning gamekeeper. They're helping the eels now. And that's kind of formed a somewhat sustainable fishery for them. And have you ever seen them crossing over land? Um, I've seen them crossing like the edge at the edge of a river. So like say of a weir pool or on some rocks, I'll see the little elvers kind of scurry up that way. But I've, I've never been say in the middle of a field and seen an eel. It does seem to be very anecdotal. I don't know. I guess there's no reason why they couldn't do that, but I've never seen it and I've never met anyone who's seen it. But that seems to be quite a popular bit of folklore, doesn't it? That eels cross land to get to places. Now, tell us a bit about your really amazing as well. You've been doing underwater filming now for a long time, haven't you? Yeah, I mean... Challenging. Be, yeah, it, it is challenging. I mean, it must, it must have been coming up to about 10 years now. And yeah, it's a whole different ball game to, to filming on land because obviously you're underwater, so it's a bit tricky. Are you a very good swimmer? Were you always a very good swimmer or does that not come into it too much? It certainly helps. It certainly helps yeah. when, you're, when you're diving and snorkelling and things like that. So... Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not a bad, I'm not a bad swimmer, uh, really. I mean, I, I, um, I've got, I've got quite a bad joint problems actually. Like, not, not arthritis, but I, I'm got hyperjoint mobility syndrome. So I'm very flexible, which means like my shoulders pop out sometimes and my knees pop out, which oh. can be quite painful. So I'm always very much aware if I'm in these remote places. The last thing I want to do is have something pop out. But when I'm in the water, yeah, I'm very, very conscious of that. But no, I'm a, I'm a pretty good swimmer, and I'm not too bad at, at doing that kind of stuff. What sort of rivers do you like going into best? I mean, any rivers. I mean, would you go into pretty much any, any, fr any fresh water? Yeah, I mean, it, it obviously depends if I'm doing it for myself or I'm doing it as a job. But for, for me, the, the best rivers tend to be the relatively small ones because they're safer to work in. They're a little bit more manageable. 
obviously the clearer the better so when i work in say chalk streams or i mean most rivers will clear out eventually it's lovely just floating down and immersing yourself in this this world with with the fish and the other wildlife when you've got like the ranunculus in your face as it passes by it's, you can almost imagine you're in the amazon or something like that and then you you think oh no i'm not i'm actually just you know in the middle of england or middle of you know where, wherever it's it, it's just phenomenal i love it you've got close to otters and things as well in these situations not when i've been in the water i, I i've been on i've been on the riverbank and i've seen otters you know yeah. um a, a few times now i've been very lucky you know i've been I've been all the way up to shetland to see otters but I've also seen them when I've been in rivers like in Norfolk and Hampshire and places like that. So I see signs of otters regularly, always see signs of them. But actually to see an otter in the flesh is, is kind of a rare treat for me. Yeah, I thought perhaps you might have come across them actually when you were filming underwater and been able. Do you think that would be something you could end up trying to film underwater? I'd love to. I'd love to do it. I'd, lo I'd love to kind of get stuck into them. Um, they obviously need quite a bit of work and the right location and, and, and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, I, th I think otters are fascinating. So I, I'd love to film them underwater. I mean, I was thinking about going to Shetland to, to have a go to do them in, in the sea at some point. And what about waterfalls? Because you've got a bit of a passion for waterfalls too, haven't you? Yeah, this sort of came later on because when I first started my career, I was trying to think, all right, I need to find a way to make, make some money somehow. So I started doing photography workshops and I started doing just beginners like, you know, teach people how to turn the camera on and that sort of thing. And then I thought, okay, they're, they're all right, but I need something a little bit more specialist. And I started to look at species that people would charge for. So kingfishers were very popular, but you needed to find somewhere that was private because you could set up a little stick or something, but then anyone could just go and do it. So I thought, that's no good to me. And I thought, well, what about water voles? And I noticed that no one or very few people were running water vole workshops. And, you know, talk about the Peak District again, the Peak District has pretty good numbers of water voles. So I thought, okay, this, there's going to be something in this. So I, I spent about six months just going up on my own, trying to find the voles, getting to know them, getting to know their habits. Uh, and, I, and I just fell in love with them. These little kind of chubby little rodents were just amazing, like mini, mini beavers almost. And they captured my imagination, just watching them kind of coming out the hole, have a little nibble coming back in the hole. And obviously they're so delicate because of habitat loss and in particularly mink are, are a huge issue for, for water voles. Because given the chance, water voles will breed very quickly and they'll spread out very quickly, but they have a, quite a high mortality rate. So predation and, and whatever. So yeah, I, I absolutely love working with water voles. And you've done lots of um, very impressive films for Country File, for um, Spring Watch and for The One Show. So how did that come about? That was very exciting. Yeah, the, the TV side of things, it was never my original plan. When I, when I was at university, I didn't learn any video, didn't do any moving image. It was all just stills. And then after a year or two, I very quickly realised stills is very difficult to make a living off on its own. So I thought, well, I'm going to try and get into filmmaking. So started playing around with my, my camera on the, on, on the film settings, bought a little GoPro, like the very first GoPro. It was like filming on a potato. It was crap quality. But, um, but it was a start. And there was a series called The Great British Year. I don't know if you saw that. It was a few yeah, years ago now. And they, they had a lot of time lapse on it. And they were looking for new talent to work on it. And it was basically just a post on Twitter. And the producer, James Brickle, just put, we're looking for people to work on this series, get in touch. So if I hadn't have seen that tweet, I might not be where I am today. That's probably a very extreme example. But I saw that, I messaged him. And we were talking for months and months and we couldn't quite find the right idea that would work. 
but eventually we settled on uh, chub eating blackberries and chub are a kind of, of a cyprinid like a carp species and they love eating blackberries in the autumn they're very kind of greedy fish the word chubby comes from chub so we we filmed that uh, and that was my foot in the door with the bbc and then i just kind of kept in touch with him that got me onto spring watch and did some bits for them and then uh, the one show and things like that and then country file that's the one i've done the most work for i think i've done about seven films of country file now something yeah, like that's been that. quite a lot of them and they're absolutely beautiful i mean really lovely should be very proud of them no it's it's lovely it's quite surreal because it, originally i started off as a contributor but now they've got me I, I mean, I suppose I am presenting them. So I'm filming and presenting at the same time. So it's quite surreal to be sat there on a Sunday, my cup of tea and my Sunday dinner. Like, oh, that's me on the telly. It's quite, uh, you don't quite get used to it. What about pike? Because um, I've always been amazed to know that pike have such an extraordinary lifestyle. I mean, their um, courtship is incredible, isn't it? Uh, Pike's courtship is incredible, isn't it? It's uh, really beautiful. I remember seeing a film, I don't know if it was yours, it's quite a long time ago, of courting Pike in a gravel pit, and it was just incredible. That would probably be Dean Berman, who is sadly no longer with us, but he, he filmed that at Stony Cove, which is actually where I learned to dive. Um, and it's yeah. quite a well-known place for Pike there. So, yeah, I mean, Pike are seen as these, these monsters that eat children and Yorkshire Terriers and drag them off the <laughs> riverbank. But they are incredibly interesting animals and they do have an amazing courtship. So during the spring, round about March time, the, the large female pike, because fe uh, the females are always bigger in pike. Anything bigger than 10 pounds is almost certainly female. And these female pike go into the shallows where it's a little bit warmer and that kind of stimulates egg growth and whatnot. And then she'll be followed by several males who are trying to court her. And they'll joust for position, they'll bite each other, they'll, they'll headbutt, and then they'll kind of eventually go up to the female and they'll rub against her flanks to encourage her to go into the weeds and release the eggs. And it's quite a delicate, almost like a dance, but you don't think of it as, as something from this kind of toothy predator. So they have got quite an elaborate courtship, really. Uh, and this, you know, this happens all over the UK early spring. And you can, if you look in the shallows, you might see a group of pike kind of attempting this. So fascinating, just fascinating. It just shows you how little we know. We tend to be drawn to all the big species, all the sort of things that people refer to as sort of iconic or charismatic, but these things are just every bit as like that, aren't they? They're just absolutely gorgeous. I think the great thing about you is it's whatever you happen to be watching at the time is what enchants you. And I would relate to that, you know, whether it's a tiny thing, a big thing, a plant, a, a fish, just fabulous. Nature is fabulous and we must protect it all we can. Do you have strong views about alien species? Things like obviously mink and signal crayfish and um, Japanese knotweed and all these horrors. You must come across that quite a lot on the side of the river. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the troubles with freshwater invasives is once they're established, they're incredibly <coughs> difficult to remove. You know, yes. let, let's say it's something like, uh, like I'm trying to think of a, of a, of a topside non-native. Uh, oh, what, what were those? A oh, koi pew. So I don't know if you can remember koi pew. Yeah. They were, yes, they, of course. Yeah. So, they were successfully eradicated, but they were like a kind of small, small beaver. I think they were South American species, but we, we eventually got rid of those because they're big. Uh, they're kind of easier to spot. But when you think of something like a signal crayfish, which can have thousands and thousands of offspring and they're all minuscule when they're born, even if you get rid of all the adults, 
they're just going to come through shortly after. And some of the rivers near me, they pull out tons, literally tons of crayfish in traps. And it doesn't even make a dent half the time in the, uh, in the population. So I think it's choosing your battles wisely um, and also weighing up, okay, what is the ecological damage of these things doing? So something like mink, for example, I think if a with a targeted effort, we could, we could eradicate mink, but it's like, if you've got one river system where they are being removed, but then another one where no one's doing anything, it's almost pointless because they're just going to spread out again. But if there was a targeted effort, then you could get rid of something like that. But the plants and the invertebrates, they're the really tricky ones yeah. to, to get rid of. So I'd obviously rather them not be here. It would be better if they weren't here. But at the end of the day, you have to think, what's the cost of removing them as opposed to maybe something else that's worth, worth more while? So it's, it's a tricky one. Yeah, it'd be better if they weren't here, but it's, um, it's difficult to remove a lot of these guys. Well, you're also an author because that's where you and I met at the Grand Arms in Grantmont Bay last year at the Wildlife Book Festival there. And you had a lovely book out last year, um, which was on freshwater fishes. Uh, no, Pond and River Wildlife was your one. The Freshwater Fishes was the book before, wasn't it? The that's book. right. That's correct. Yeah. So um, how's that been doing? Um, <laughs> not, not great, really. Um, so... I won't because I did do a podcast about book publishing. Uh, like I think it was the second one I did. So if you want to know more about the story, you can listen to that one. But essentially, I didn't have a very good relationship with the publishers just because uh, I never made any money from royalties on that book. So I ended up doing all this effort and not getting a lot out of it. I'm immensely proud of the first book, Freshwater Fishes. I'm, I'm quite happy with that. They were you know, fairly free with me doing that. The second book, I just kind of did that because I've, I just wanted to get another book out. It, it's a lovely little book. I'm not slamming it. You know, you should check no, it, it out. It's lovely. I've got a copy and it's a super um, weird book. But I, I think they're actually, I think they're both out of print now. So I don't think you can buy them anymore. The publishers aren't making anymore. So mm. if you've got a copy, it's, it's, it's technically limited oh. edition. <laughs> well, have you plans to do any more books? Uh, yes, I have. So um, I've done some collaborations with other people as well which I really like. Um, so there was a book that's just come out called The Complex Lives of Britain's Freshwater Fishers and a chap called Mark Everard, who's a good friend of mine, he wrote the book and I did the imagery for it. And that's a very comprehensive guide to fish. So I, I, I'd recommend that one to people. Um, and I'm talking to a publisher about uh, doing a book, traveling around Europe and finding some of Europe's weirdest and rarest fish. There's, there was a fantastic book by Patrick Barkham uh, yeah. Butterfly Isles. I don't know if you remember yes. that. Yes, if you've I read have that. Read it. Yeah. And um, yeah. I'm, a I'm actually interviewing Patrick later today, weirdly enough, for the podcast. Um, I, I similar in similar vein to that. So it'd just be me traveling around, talking to the people who work with these fish, uh, but on a European wide scale. Uh, obviously, at the moment, travel's a little bit tricky, but uh, somewhere down the line, I'd like to do that book. And that's talking to a publisher at the moment about doing that. But I've well, got you about. Make sure you get your deal sorted this time. And yes, sure yes, I will. Here. Don't you worry. Is it a different I will... publisher you're going to It have? will, yes, yes, it will. It will be. Uh, it was New Holland. I'll name and shame them. It was the people before. I will not be touching those with a 10 foot barge pole um, again. <laughs> but um, other, I, I've had great experiences and great chats with other publishers. So they're not all, not all the same, obviously. But um, no, I've, got, no, I... I've, got, I've got about five or six ideas in my head for books, but it's just finding the time. Uh, and, and the right people to pitch them to. So you have, and other than fish, um, you know, if you could go and photograph anything British wildlife today, forgetting the fish, what would you like to go and spend time with and photograph? That's a very good question. I mean, so as you say, I am a general general naturalist. I am interested in everything. Um, 
I am yet to see a wild golden eagle. That is very high on my list. I would love to, even if it was just a dot in the sky, I would be really pleased to see that. And I've had, it keeps, it keeps being a bogey species. I went to Sky a few years ago and I saw white-tailed sea eagles out of um, Talisker Bay. That was absolutely phenomenal. And we, we, then we went to go do a hide for golden eagles and we were in it for 12 hours. It was on my friend's birthday and I got in the hide first and then he got in after me and then a golden eagle flew over the hide as he got in. So he saw it, um, but obviously the eagle saw us and then it wouldn't, it wouldn't come down then. So that was, you know, as close as I got. And then last year I went to uh, Cairngorm, to the actual Cairngorm mountain. And again, I was with some friends and I was looking at something else and a golden eagle attacked some geese flying over and they saw that, but I missed it. So I keep being in the same area as them, but I've not seen one. So that's very, very high. Um, but also, you have I'd to go to Martin, or you'll have to go to Isla. Both of those places are fabulous for both golden and sea eagles. But um, yeah, oh, really? I, is that right? Yeah, I mean Ardnamartin, you see golden eagles all the time there. It's just absolutely wonderful. Oh, I'd love to. I'd That's love to see one. Birds. There's just something about them. I can't quite describe it, but they are just phenomenal birds. And be beavers. I'd love to see beaver. I've never seen a wild one of those. And on, on a smaller scale, stag beetles. Right. Um, because we don't we don't we get lesser sag beetles in in the midlands but we don't get the the kind of big ones that you get down south so yeah, we will uh, get them here and I, I would love to see them I, I since i was a child i haven't seen one i think i was only about eight years old when i saw one and i've never seen one since i'd love to they're, they're impressive looking things aren't they yeah. so um yeah maybe one year i might take a i think london weirdly enough london's really good for them so i might i might kind of take a trip down at some point and, and try and see one yeah, it's not always the exotic things, is it? It's all these amazing uh, things that a lot of other people don't like. Pearl mussels. Have you had much to do? Have you filmed any pearl mussels or, yeah, done yeah, some work? I've done a little bit, yeah. So, because they're incredibly long-lived, aren't they? I think they can live yes, like well, well over 100. And they, they produce black pearls. I think I'm right in saying there's like a kind of black pearl that they produce. Again, they're, a, they're an incredible indicator of healthy river systems if you've got pearl mussels. I think they're largely restricted to Northern England and Scotland. I don't think you find them in many other places. And they've got an interesting life cycle that they can only breed if there are salmon and trout present because they release the spores. They go into yeah. the salmon and trout's gills, gestate for a while, and then they drop down into the gravel. Um, and they don't move. I think they stay wherever they kind of fall. That's where the mussels stay then. Um, so I've not had a lot of experience. I've done a little bit of work with them. Again, I'd love to do more work with pearl mussels. I mean, I find them fascinating. But again, we don't get them locally where I am. I think you're coming up to Scotland soon, aren't you, to do some filming for Riverwoods um, with Scotland The Big Picture as well? By the time this podcast comes out, I should have hopefully done that. But yes, it, it, it's my future now. It'll be my past when this comes out. Um, but yes, I am going up to do that, which which is great because I've not, you know, obviously because of the current situation we're all in, I've done very little traveling. I've, I've only really gone around about an hour from my house. So I've not done any kind of longer shoots that I would not, you know, not a typical year for me. I, I spend so much time away from home traveling, doing shoots, which is lovely. I love my job, but I don't get to, to do stuff locally normally, um, which has been actually a nice side effect of it all. But yeah, I'm, I am looking forward to going up to Scotland for, for a few days to hopefully do some bits with, with Scotland, the big picture, predominantly par. They want me to kind of film the, 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 the baby salmon and they're looking at how woody debris is really, really beneficial because we tend to be, you know, clearing out all these fallen trees in the rivers, but actually yeah. they're really, really good habitat for invertebrates and for small fish. 
and obviously that has a knock-on effect for, for everything else so do, do a bit of filming on that very interconnected isn't it so and do you have any more um plans for the future for films are you doing any more for the bbc at the moment or um I've not got anything locked in uh, for them. I mean, that's one of the hazards of being a freelancer. You know, you, you can kind of be flirted with jobs, but uh, as I'm sure you probably know as well, but um, yeah. I don't really, I don't take it seriously till I'm there on the day and I've done it <laughs> normally. Um, but yeah, there, there, are, there are some conversations I'm having, hopefully to do some more, some more filming for things like that. Um, I'm doing some work with salmon and trout conservation um, uh, in Scotland, actually, weirdly enough, trying to film salmon and trout for those they want to get some nice pictures for their campaigns um and i'm Do also you see doing yourself as being in a position where you could really influence people on protecting fish and things i mean you must increasingly see yourself as being very important in that um, conservationist uh, yeah I, I i i don't know if i'm important maybe i'm important i don't know that's probably a bit generous you, you, but you put the message out so you're a, you're talking to people with your country file pieces and yes your, yeah you know, i see what you mean um people who i mean you have a big influence on them you know perhaps they didn't know anything about the things you're telling them so yeah incredibly important i i typically i try to keep out of anything too political unless unless yeah. i feel unless yeah. i feel very strongly about it just because for the work I do, it's just easier. It's an easier ride. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but occasionally, yeah, there will be issues that I'm like, you know, I do I do feel strongly um, about that. So I mean, I'm a trustee of the Trent Rivers Trust, for example, because I've I've lived on that river for most of my life, and I feel very passionate about the River Trent. So, um, but yeah, no, I will voice my opinion occasionally on 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 issues and things like that. But I try to. I try to keep out of it if I can yeah, help no, it. <laughs> I would agree, but I think you probably don't realise what a wonderful influence you are on people in a in a positive way in the films that you're showing. I mean, I think they are heartening. They're also connecting people inadvertently to nature. And I think that's a, a role that is incredibly important. Um, I think right. that's something that you do really, really well. well that's very kind of you. No, I think uh, we're going to see a lot more of you. I really hope so. And um, when you come up to Scotland, we'll have to try and see if we can't arrange to get you a Golden Eagle. Um, I'll, ho I'll hold you to that, Polly. <laughs> yeah, well, I usually manage to find them. Um, so might have to do a wee bit of travelling about or a bit of walking. But uh, yes, there's, there's, they're around. It would be lovely if you could see one. Oh, it'd be phenomenal. It'd be absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute delight to speak to you and uh i think you know you're doing a great job with your podcast but it's really lovely to hear what you do and i really wish you all the very best with all the work you're doing in the future and thank you so much for talking to me no thank well, well thank you because and i should just say you suggested this as well this isn't me saying i want to talk about myself for an hour you you did come to me didn't you <laughs> Yes, I did, because I, I really felt that, you know, you were talking to me and I thought, well, I really want to find out an awful lot more about you and particularly about, you know, what you do. And I think um, you, you inspire me because I know so little about fish and um, I still know so little, but I know a little bit more now having spoken to you. And I think that's the point. You, you have the power to um, captivate people. I mean, you do it in such a, an approachable, lovely way that I think it can but do good for the fish world. <laughs> yes, thank you, Polly. Not at all. Now to our featured nature reserve. In fact, I want to tell you about two very special reserves on the Hebridean island of Isla, both of which are owned by the RSPB. Firstly, Loch Grunart, 
translated from the Old Norse as shallow fjord, is a large sweeping sea loch to the north of the island. And secondly, the Mullabow in the south, with its dramatic sea cliffs frequented by hirsute wild goats, open moorland, blanket bogs, and freshwater lochs, where the cries of red-throated divers carry on the sea breeze. The whole island is unsurpassed for wildlife encounters, and while it may lack foxes, badgers, pine martens and red squirrels, and oddly, moles, it is probably now the very finest place in the entire country for seeing birds of prey, and is thankfully a safe stronghold for the persecuted hen harrier and both species of eagle. <clears throat> it's also likely that you'll see peregrine, merlin, sparrowhawk and kestrel, as well as the ubiquitous buzzard. Isla is also the stronghold for the prettiest and arguably the most entertaining member of the Corvid family, the Chuff, with its brilliant crimson legs, curved bill and laughing core. Nicknamed the cowpat specialist, its survival depends on a careful management system where cattle are left to winter outside, ensuring a plentiful supply of cowpats full of juicy invertebrates for this gorgeous bird to feed on. In summer, corn crakes rattle away in the swathes of flag iris and skylarks sing their sweet Hebridean overtures, leaving you drunk with a euphoria, while lapwing and curlew add their own glorious soundscapes to that of drumming snipe. The rare marsh fertility and numerous, numerous unusual plants may also be discovered in summer. Otters, hares and seals are plentiful, and from prominent headlines you may well see cetaceans too. The island's wildlife extravaganza is, however, dominated by the spectacle of its vast flocks of wintering geese. Around 60% of the world population of barnacle geese and a quarter of the population of the threatened Greenland white-fronted goose come here and provide incredible avian drama. And let's not forget that Islet is also home to nine famous whiskey distilleries and there are apparently soon to be two more. Visitors can either fly or travel with the car via a Calmac ferry. At this time of uncertainty, it's important to check Scottish Government guidelines before you make any plans. Well, it's been a very great, great pleasure to be your host in this, the Bearded Tits podcast, and I have loved chatting to the man himself. Thank you so much for listening. Look after your wildlife. Goodbye for now. <laughs>